0: this episode of the better Two podcast is brought to you by kitty mystic and dm needham author of the better to burnout series which includes her latest releases of fairy tales and i love you and his love just another high hi gang donna here thanks for tuning in to the better Two podcast today's guest is audrey brinbaum audrey wrote a book which is actually kind of based on her father's diaries. It's called American Wolf from Nazi refugee to American spy. And she tells us a little bit about her father's journey. And we also talk about the fact that sometimes we're forced into taking a break so we can deal with things in a better way than if we had to keep going. So enjoy. Hi, Audrey, how are you doing today?
1: I'm wonderful, Donna. Thank you so much for having me.
0: So, you have a book currently coming out, and this book is very close to home because it was something that I know you're a practice, you were a practicing doctor at the time, but you started this as a soul search journey, basically. Because would I say that maybe your medical practice wasn't as fulfilling at the time, and this led you on this journey, or did something major happen in your life?
1: Well, Donna, it was a mixture of a few things. I actually found my medical practice to be incredibly fulfilling. I was practicing for over 30 years um, as a pediatric gastroenterologist, which is very hard to say, (laughs) Uh, but I do my best. Um, I loved it. I loved my patients. Um, I had spent my first half of my year doing more academic work and my second half doing um, uh, patient care. And then... um, I think in 2018 things started to kind of uh, go, I don't want to say downhill, but um, my um, my father died and mm. around the same time I also had an injury that took me out of work for the first time in my life. I' have worked I feel like I' worked since I was five years old. <laughs> it was a very hardworking family. And um, so I actually had had a ski injury um, and a week later my father passed away. And I had to prepare a eulogy for him, and he had had this experience of, you know, being in the Holocaust when he was a child and escaping Nazi Germany uh, fairly late, like in 1941. And I knew I had to tell the details, but I, I you know kind of didn't remember, like, all the stories he had told us growing up. And, and then I was also you know recovering from this injury it was just a very hard time and I remember my father had written down a lot of his memories in a very lengthy um you know he called it a book it was more like I guess a memoir of a kind that he really wrote mostly for his family and I kind of pulled it out and, and read it rather quickly to just sort of figure out the facts and details I could put into a um um uh, 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 eulogy and i didn't really look at it again i was able to prepare something read his story kind of marvel at the details i had forgotten and i, I put it away and then i was off my feet for a couple of months I went back to work and from then on, I was kind of like dragging myself into work. I was like, Oh, this the first time I had never, I hadn't worked for a couple of months. I was like, this is really hard. I forgot how hard it was to work full time. I had three kids. I was working full time. I, I think like for years and years, I, I just had like these two pillars, you know, family work, family work. That's like all I could do. And there was really no time for anything else. So I kind of, I think that was sort of a, the, 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 The moment when I said, is this really what I'm going to do for like the next 10 years or is there going to be some other moment? So I finally it took me a long time, a lot of soul searching to finally decide to leave work because I was so committed to it. and It was such a part of my identity. But by around 2020, I January of 2020, I I, I decided to resign. I don't want to say retire. I was afraid to say that. <laughs> so I said, I'll resign yeah. just in case, leave the door open. Um, and at the time, like I thought, well, I'm going to do all these other things, you know, I, uh, was music and art and ballroom dancing. And I don't know what I had a whole list. And then I uh, like a month later, I found myself, you know, with a face mask on sitting on the couch in the middle of a pandemic and all those things I had intended to do really, you know, i had done them for Stop. a few weeks lot <laughs> well, i can't learn much ballroom dancing in a few weeks but uh, and then i said you know it sort of all came back to me that i really i i knew you know back when i had read my father's book i, I kind of knew in my heart it had always been my plan this uh story of my father's was so important what he had been through was so fascinating moving emotional and unique i knew i was going to write it at some point so it could be shared with everybody. I, I knew it. I, I just had to give it some time, had to give myself some time.
0: Right.
1: And that's really what started this journey.
0: And see, I have to go back to that moment of your ski injury and losing your father, because there's certain times in our life that we don't realize that maybe the universe, God, however you want to look at it, has our back. Because think of how, how much harder it would have been. Well, I know it wasn't easy. But think about how much harder it would have been had you been working at the time, dealing with your father's death. I mean, that would have been a totally different process for you, where this, you had a little bit more grace.
1: You know, I hadn't really thought about it that way. I just thought, wow, this is a bad year. <laughs> this is, <laughs> this is, uh, you know, because I really like was dragging myself, you know, on crutches mm-hmm. to a podium to technology. Right. It all felt like very, like, overwhelming. It was dizzying, the whole experience. It just my mind was... Not clear. It was like that craziness, you know, with with death, that sort of craziness, Mm -hmm. you know, or we would say the year of magical thinking, Joan Didion would say, but it was a um, yeah, there was a certain insanity to it where you're not processing. And yes, I think also in medicine, particularly, there's this sort of dragging yourself to work no matter what, like you feel like you can't take any time off. Your patients are waiting for you. How can you cancel a colonoscopy for a funeral? My goodness, they're, they've been waiting six weeks. They already took the prep, (laughs) you know, you 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 cannot take a day off. There's always been like a a struggle in medicine, this sort of, um, even though you're promoting health, there is no self-care because you have to, you know, sick or well, you just drag yourself in. So yeah, I had this sort of forced, period. And and actually, you know, while I was, although I skipped over many parts, while I was out um, on leave, because I was um, non-weight-bearing during that time, I actually spent a lot of time reading through my father's story, which, uh, you know, really was an incredible story that eventually turned into my book, which is called American Wolf, um, from from Nazi refugee to American spy. So it, it, it moves um from one place to, to another but it does come full circle um and you know eventually yeah that was uh became like sort of a new mission so i guess i'm and still working
0: <laughs> well you are i mean you have just trans- transformed your life because i went from i was in insurance as a claim supervisor and i had identified with that job so much and then i was taken out because of an injury and when you lose that identity, because so many times we are put into a box or given a label that we are identifying as you're the gastroenterologist. Yes, I can talk. <laughs> um, but you are, that's what you identified as. And you identified as a mom. And you wore these hats. And this is who you were. And when you take yourself out of one of those boxes, you suddenly have to rediscover who you are and that can be daunting especially since you resign not too, too far out from the pandemic because yeah you had all these ideas and these dreams for me personally my life was transformed because my husband died in the middle of the pandemic wow. he was sick already he was sick with long term illness but still all the normal grieving processes that you would go through you couldn't yes so
1: right. yes. It, and there's a lot so of isolation it, too all of that yes
0: so there's a lot of a lot of things where I think, you know, as bad as the pandemic was, and I'm not saying it was good in any way, shape or form, it made us all stop for a bit, or at least most of us stop for a bit to really look at our lives and take stock.
1: You know, they, one of the odd things was for me that um, even though like we were not seeing people um, in a regular way, it made me yearn for connections more and reach out. To people more than I ever had before, because I was so busy with seeing patients, it sort of felt very fulfilling. It felt like I had this sort of life with people, Um, but I hadn't really cultivated um, strong friendships in a way that I would have liked. Which I think since I've left work, I've been able to do and have now this community, which. Um, is so important uh, you know again looking back to my father's experience and his sort of escape um the importance of being able to rely on people and community and support was something um that was so critical I don't think he had as much of that as he could have uh, due to all kinds of interpersonal issues with his his family but it was so critical to have that um to be able to survive even when he came here and started up again as an immigrant.
0: Well, that's the one thing I was gonna say, there's a lot of isolation in your father's story because I mean, who do you trust? Who do you really trust? Who do you know? Especially when he he ends up turning into a spy, how do you know who to trust? How do you know that that person that you think is your friend isn't gonna suddenly flip the script and turn you in?
1: Yeah, I think there is so much, I mean, for my father, it was learning also, I got to know him more after he died than during his life. I mean, I knew him in a certain way. You know, he's the dad and he had a bit of a domineering personality and a little bit of volatile personality that uh, could be difficult at times. I never understood where it came from because I saw him as a child. I was a child in that relationship. When I read the details of everything he had lost and lost again and lost again friends family money citizenship um it, it was so much loss that it explained so much to me about um why he held so tightly onto things and um so many things he hadn't really worked out but it was so much easier to, for me to be forgiving And to understand, like, compassionately, who who he was and why he was the way he was, it was very sad. I mean, I I cried, (laughs) cried buckets (laughs) Um, when when I was writing, when I was reading his story. It was it was um, it was very heartbreaking. Um, I
0: imagine, I can imagine, and so, and I think one thing, even whether it be death or just as we age, when we are able to turn around and look at our parents as adults and and as human beings instead of dad or mom we get a truer vision of who they were and why they may have had those reactions or behaviors and we can then look at them and forgive them with grace at that time
1: absolutely Absolutely. I mean, I think I had for yeah, you know, he had been forgiven, you know, in the sense that right, I didn't harbor right. an any ill will or anger. I mean, I had to I think once I had my own children, I, you know, it was easy to forgive a parent for their flaws because my goodness, we were all flawed parents. <laughs> right. Um, but but I think that the the, the true understanding uh, you know, it just wasn't quite there. Um so now I'm really excited. You know, the, the book is already out on pre order and um People who've read it are seem to be uh relating to it really well. I've tried to add humor, not just uh, all sad? <laughs> it's uh it's uh it's got humor, it's got adventure and action so um, I think it's um but most importantly as I want to, I think it's still important to tell Holocaust stories too because they're um, you know the first generation uh, survivors are dwindling. And even us second generation survivors are, you know, uh, retirees already. You know, we're getting old. So, um, and for the younger people to learn, they need to hear personal stories, um, not just statistics, to bring it home, make it feel real. I,
0: I agree. I mean, I remember learning about the Holocaust in, in high school, and thinking to myself, "How could that ever happen? How could we ever get here? You know, how did they ever get the, to that point?" But then when I look at the world now, it's easy to see. And it's like if we if we don't teach, if we don't show those human stories and it's just all numbers that people are now saying are not true, which is B.S., but that's beside the point. If we don't have the human emotion attached to teach the children or teach younger people that this is real, they're not going to learn and we're doomed to repeat the same mistakes for a different reason. And that's that's a big thing that I think most people miss. They're they're not looking at this is fact. This is something that really, really happened. And here are stories from people.
1: Yeah, it feels I mean, for us it's recent, but for kids, you know, nineteen thirty-eight to forty-five, it's an awfully long time ago. It's black and white, you
0: know. I, I write I write his I write my books are set in the eighties and I think it was yeah in 2020, 1980 was deemed historical fiction at that point. I
1: know 1980 was <laughs> yesterday. I know. Was I'm loving like 1980. What, what are exactly. you talking
0: about? Exactly. I'm like I was in high school in the 80s, and you're telling me this is historical now. <laughs> so it, it's but we don't realize that we don't realize how how much how much time has passed and how quickly it has passed. So for you to do this and share the stories, I think. I think it's a good thing and I think it's a a wonderful way of honoring his memory, but also enlightening other people.
1: Yeah. That's my main goal now is, um, personal enlightenment and enlightening others. (laughs) Still working on the personal enlightenment.
0: That'll be a lifelong lesson (laughs) as we all know. So are you, are you planning on going to possibly schools to talk about this or do a TED talk? Awesome. Yeah,
1: And then I also just, I didn't realize, um, ignorant as i was how um little uh, i uh are we we have no uniform curriculum in this country on holocaust education nor even a mandate in all our states that there even be a holocaust education and even in new york there's no clear-cut curriculum there's just a mandate that we should have an education but what that is is really you know, it's it's um, the last legislation was in 2022. It came to the floor of New York State and it said we should have a survey to study it. <laughs> That's I know. I know, it's, you know the wheels of um, government move very slowly. But I think that maybe we can influence that. I maybe I can influence that on a, some small level somewhere. I'm thinking, you know, I mean, there's, you know, there's, I could go into schools and I can tell the story, that's something, but I'm feeling like maybe I could do something bigger.
0: I would say so. I I would think that if, you know, the, the old adage of if we don't learn from history, we are going to repeat. And we are going to repeat this if we do not pay attention. I mean, dare I say, look at the 1920s and look where we're at now. You know, economic wise, we're not in the same place, but we are headed that way if we don't pay attention. And that's the only thing I mean by that. It's like so as easy as it is to repeat this. We're already seeing this with certain gender issues, and I'm not trying to make this a political conversation because we're here to talk about your book, but there is similarities. And I really wish people would learn from our mistakes. Well, you know,
1: human human nature remains the mm -hmm. same. And that's why we make the same mistakes, and mm-hmm. so you know that's you know when we're bound to. But I think we can educate our way out of it. So I remain hopeful. I'm hopeful in young people. I think they just need to learn. They're basically young people. They they start out innocent. They they start out fair minded, and I think
0: it's the the outside influences that push yes, their narrative, exactly. and that's. That's the thing. As a, as a teenager, I my, myself personally, I decided to step out of my parents' views. I am nothing like either one of my parents as far as their views. And I still have to warn my dad. It's like, Dad, we're not going there. I'm not discussing this with you. Because otherwise... Oh uh, you it's can't not have thanksgiving <laughs> no no you, you it's just like it's not worth it let's just you you're my dad that's it that's as far as we're gonna go i forgive him for his beliefs i forgive him for who he is but the fact is it is what it is and i'm not going to change my views to mirror his yeah that's,
1: that's right. i get sad no, 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 no. when i hear about families that are ripped apart by politics it's uh it's unfortunate
0: um, it is especially because it's not something that should be so detrimental to a family. But in a roundabout way, what you were saying about your dad and maybe not having that support was still happening back then, was it not?
1: Uh, yeah, I think that's uh, that's certainly true. Yeah. Um, my, so my, interestingly, like, my father himself came from a sort of, um, kind of a, a bit of a quirky family, which I thought, really added to his story a little bit that he um, is is his, his parents didn't have like the most perfect marriage it wasn't like the most loving relationship there was a little bit of strife um and i think that there were things about it that were amusing um you know i think his his mother felt that she had married beneath beneath her a little bit she was trying to I wouldn't say she was a social striver she was like desperately they were poor they were desperately trying to to make it just to the middle class that was it they're just trying to make it to the middle class and they really like were um, working really really hard to live in Germany there was like a German dream so similar to like the American dream here you know that if you worked hard and prospered you could you know, make it even a, in those days, even as a Jew, that was really tough, like, you know, to see equality. So in Germany, you could, um, y- you know, you could be in the civil service in in Germany. That was unusual in those days. So the sense that there was equality that you could have as a Jewish person was very, very powerful. And, and so that's why all the Jews were coming to Germany, because you, you could live life as an equal where you couldn't in the rest of Eastern Europe, for example. So they were all going west to Germany. Um, so my, so my, uh, my, my grandmother and my grandfather they weren't too educated, but they thought, well, if they worked really hard, they could maybe, they could maybe make it. So they worked really, really, really hard. They made it to the middle class, and then came Hitler, <laughs> and everything was like, you know, you know. So when it came time to leave, they were like, well, we kind of don't want to because we finally. We finally planted our, our roots here. We finally made it. And so they were a little slow to pick up on the fact that it was time to get out of Dodge. And uh, <laughs> it did cause a bit of trouble for them in the long run. And then my, my, my grandmother was, um, she was a little judgmental of people. So she did um, burn some bridges, which wasn't very, wasn't very good. But she was she, she meant very well.
0: Of course she did. She did. I mean, when you do well, this, she, she thought she was doing right by her. and that's... She did. She
1: did. And a beating or two, you know, well, <laughs> discipline, good discipline.
0: Ba- back then, you know, <laughs> discipline, even up until I would say the 90s, discipline was a big thing.
1: Old-fashioned discipline. Uh,
0: I went to school in junior high. It was a Lutheran school. I am not Lutheran. But uh there was a paddle, a paddle about yay big with three holes in it that yeah, if you did something wrong, they could take it out on you. Different times. Yes, I don't think that would be allowed even in private school today, but you know, maybe I'm wrong. Anyway, did it make, um, you, more
1: so, re- did it make you more resilient, Donna? What do you think? What do you think? Or just I never me-
0: met I never met the paddle. <laughs> okay. I, I kept my nose clean. I, I did not want to meet the paddle. Uh Just the threat was enough to keep me uh, in check. So, yeah, not that I I have not been. Stepped out of trouble before, but uh, when a paddle was involved, there was no, mm -mm, mm -mm, not like that. No, sorry. Mm -mm. No, well, but that was the thing back then. I mean, it was. Yes. So how did your how did your father and if you don't want to give it away because it's in the book, I understand. How did your father become a spy?
1: Oh, so he, um, when he was in the height of the Cold War, um, we, he, it, I guess it was like just after the Korean War had ended, he entered the service. And because of his fluency in German, he uh, ended up being stationed in East Germany and being part of the mission which was a, a spying like every country had a mission and they all did spying um and so he did so for the US um and did some you know pretty dangerous missions and um would like photograph i mean they had like it was like a James Bond they had like the little cameras and the little um microphones and, and they did, they took pictures of all the uh, Russian subs and equipment. And, um, you know, it was, I think it was the time that he, it was the first time that he felt really proud to be an American. Like he wore his uniform, um, he's like armor because he'd gone back to Germany and there was a sudden feeling of like, what, what about these Germans? Are they all Nazis? What are they going to do when they look at me? Are they going to see right. a, a Jew? Or are they going to, you know, it was like a sudden shock to first go back. Like, he had wanted to go back because he had this homesickness, but at the same time, there was a great fear. And to go back as an American soldier kind of assuaged that fear a bit. Um, and he also felt, important and he had you know he had grown up with tremendous insecurities i mean he came came to this country was left back two years um he he was despised when he came here for being a jew for being a german they called him a nazi you know it was was very awkward time and he he had gone through a lot of hardship once he came here in a way you know there was a lot of trauma here almost as much as when he was there um So I think he sort of came into his own as a, um, you know, (laughs) car racing, (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know, uh, uh, intelligence officer and found some romance. And uh, so when he was able to come back to the United States, though, he had to kind of figure out again what was his identity, because he now had was back to speaking German and to figure out who he was. Uh, So. I think for me, the, re- the reason I put that in the book is also because America had done some interesting things. They had let Nazis back in the country because now they were so afraid of communism. And so, again, there's just a lot of confusion about what our relationship was to Germans, to Germany, to Nazis. You know, just it was like a full circle, created like a nice narrative arc. And for my father, for his whole identity. Who he was as an American, a Jew, and and a German.
0: I I think you bring up a good point, a very valid point that we never talk about because, you know, we always talk about America being this great melting pot. We don't talk about, you know, it, it makes it seem like, oh, you just come over, we invite you in, and here, everything is wonderful for you. But the truth is, there's always some kind of stigma. You're always getting some kind of stigma. You know, we may act like we welcome everybody here with open arms. And I'm going back before the last 10 years. But there's always still that trauma. There's still going to be that trauma of you leaving your home and hoping that even if you just move. I moved from one part of a state to another, and there was still trauma there because there was different cultures, even though it was the same state. I went from New Orleans to Shreveport. OK, New Orleans was known as a party town. Shreveport at the time was very much a conservative Baptist kind of kind of town. So there was still this trauma of, well, you, you sound like you're from New York. You don't belong here. Da, 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 da. You don't dress like us. You don't talk like us. And it was just so even uh, on and that's minor
1: scale. And this is going to sound ridiculous. But when I moved my practice from Mount Sinai to <laughs> Mount Kisco Medical Group, I felt so displaced <laughs> I'm standing in the office. I'm like, what am I doing here? This office doesn't feel right. You know, you feel this complete sense of displacement. That's so minimal. But I mean, I I, I understand the feeling of like complete displacement. But when what I didn't know, my grandfather had some serious mental difficulties Mm -hmm. when he moved. I did not know that there is now like a DSM what are we five DSM five you know one of those psychiatric categories on the big textbook of psych- psychiatry called uh, Ulysses syndrome that describes a specific psychological syndrome of for immigrants of displacement, bewilderment depression um of the em- em- immigrants um so it has its own category now because my, my grandfather had terrible depression, and I think my my family thought that there had been some bipolar issues in some family members, and they thought, was he bipolar? They didn't know, you know, that at the time. But it really is something specific to the immigrant experience. You come here, you don't know the language, you don't have connections, you may not be living in a community where people speak your language, you may have lost your status and your livelihood, and you're like a lost soul and you're homesick. It's it's a, and I could see how even within a country moving, especially a country as large as America, or right, we have regional differences, you could feel exactly the same way. It's very disorienting. That's the word, disorienting.
0: But I think nobody takes those those things ever, whether it be immigrating or even just even even like you were saying, moving your practice, moving your house into Uh a different neighborhood. There's always this unsettling feeling and we don't give ourselves grace for that. And I can't even imagine running for your life to a different country and not knowing what's going to happen with anybody else you've ever known, if they're going to survive or anything else, and then coming in and being ridiculed that. They're, it that's going to place some anger deep down inside, whether you deal with it or not, because you're always going to remember those little traumas. You always do.
1: Yes, they made my father, actually, because it was it was the 40s and they made my father fight a Japanese boy or an Asian boy. I don't even know if he was Japanese. Yeah, they made him fight, you know, because it was, you know, it was the Axis. <laughs> out so mm-hmm. of fight, and he felt like he had no choice. He had to beat up the other kid, and they sat there and they called him a jap, and they called my father a Nazi, and they they circled him, and and that was, um, you know, that's what kids do, you know.
0: In, in the seventies, yeah. my grand, my grandfather, who had been in World War II, um, we bought a Toyota. Yes. And yes, my my grandfather <laughs> had some, ch- yes. actually it was a silica, but yes, it, my grandfather had some choice words and called it a trap, but he put the first word there and I will not say it. That's not, that's only me. And it, I understand him. you're, you're making a point, but he would call it that. It's like, that's, we fought those people. That, that. is like, really? And here's the really sad thing is when I moved to this town that I live in, which is about 9,000 people. Uh we went my husband and I were like let's go to this restaurant get some local cuisine we have to figure out some things. Well we go there the restaurant is set it could be set in the 60s because we still have the hand towel in the bathroom oh, you yes. know the one that you pull through. <laughs> yes, yes, you know that's so sanitary. <laughs> um but the people at the lunch counter the older people at the lunch counter are talking about people of Chinese descent and using stereotypical words and I'm sitting there mortified because this is, I think, 2013. And this place was just like stepping into the 50s, 60s, where you they were just openly being racist. And I couldn't believe it because I thought I thought we had progressed. Well, I got the rude awakening shortly after that, but you know, it was just one of those things where it's like, as much as we've progressed, we have started falling backwards and, and we don't look at everybody and say, okay, it goes back to what you were saying about Germany why can't everybody be equal? Why? Why can't we have that equality? Why does everybody have to have that stereotypical little little title, whether it's your country of origin, or something else? Why are we still dealing with that? So what did you? How did you find out your dad was a spy? Did he tell you this? Or did you find it in his journals? Later?
1: No, I mean, he. Had, first of all, the way he drove, <laughs> you would know that he had been an intelligence officer. He drove a manual transmission. I mean, it was very funny. He drove, you know, when everybody in America was driving like this gigantic vehicle, like my my American grandparents and my father's a boat. on my mother's side drove a boat, you know, like mm-hmm. some giant Buick Impala or something. Mm-hmm. And then my father would pull up. Our, his first, our first car that I remember was called a Simca, which I think was French. Our second car was a Beetle, um, okay. and our and our third car that I remember was a was a Corolla that we drove on air condition that we drove out west. He we would always buy a stripped down stick shift, and then he would like you know race around like a little bug, you know, between cars. And he, I think he liked to do it on purpose because he felt uh, you know he felt uh, I don't know snazzy, <laughs> yes. you, know, you know, it was uh, like, I guess ma- I never thought of him as macho, but I guess in a way that would be the way to describe it. But um, then he would tell us about his escapades, you know, being chased by the Russians or uh, or the East Germans. And so we knew uh, the, uh, the stories. But again, the, you know, when your parents regal you with stories, they do it when you're younger and then they tend not to repeat it. When you're older, something you they're kind of vague memories and you, you don't really recall the details at all. So I had to go back when I reread his book and um kind of familiarize myself with all the the fun details of his I mean he was a young man. He was 24 25 It was I think it, it was a good time for him. The except except is... when he got picked up and you know ar- arrested and he thought he was going to be sent to a gulag and made to disappear. <laughs> well that was not so much fun. But no. 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 no
0: Did did um did you ever doubt his stories when you were little? Did you were no. thinking like oh, oh dad's watched too many James bonds mo- no, James Bond movies?
1: No no no, <laughs> no no. No no. He was always absolutely never doubted it at all. Always absolutely 100% truthful. I, I no I don't doubt a thing.
0: I believe you. I just know some parents yeah. are a little so outlandish that you're just going, mm-hmm. especially kids nowadays. If you tell them something like, "Yeah, right," <laughs> but so he had a very interesting and amazing life. Did you get to? I take it you got to know your grandparents as well, or uh, did they? Have, no, have
1: um, my uh, my grandfather died before I was born. Um, my uh, grandmother. Um, who had, you know, emigrated to this country was uh, a part of my life. She died when she was in her eighties and she was a good part of my life. And she was a tough grandmother in the sense that she was, you know, she was European and she had a heavy accent and she spoke a lot of like mixed German and English. And, and I found her, she wasn't like a warm and fuzzy grandmother. Um, I think like, I don't know. What people would consider like a typical Jewish grandmother, which would be like Oh warm like, you know, bubby or whatever. I didn't have a, ever have a grandmother like that. She was, you know, she was strict. And, you know, yeah, we would go over to her house and she would make dinner, but there was there were portions <laughs> and i would come home and tell my parents i was still hungry it was just that's a very german thing by the way to have like you have a specific portion and this is what you get and you don't ask for more and there are rules it's just it's very it's really very german they were more german than jewish in their um demeanor and, and behavior and their sensibilities um without doubt and so um I we live very close to my grandmother and uh, my father, and she argued German. I absorbed some German somewhere in my head. I didn't know I knew it because they didn't teach it to me, but it was in there somewhere. And um, um, yeah, I felt like I knew her well enough that when I had to put dialogue in the book, it was I I it was easy. I I knew it. Uh, I knew how to do it. And my aunt, um, who had a little bit of a different experience than my father, she was sent to England um, in 1939 because they didn't have, they were not allowed to have visas for all four of them to get out. Uh, they felt that the, the, the uh, consulate felt that there wasn't enough money to support all four of them here, so they had to figure out who to sacrifice. And um, so... But yes, in terms of, and, and my, although I did not know my grandfather, my father had described him well enough that I felt that I could portray him well. He was the goofier dreamer, not the disciplined worker. He was, uh, again, I remember my grandmother thought she married beneath her because he wasn't so ambitious. I mm-hmm. wanted somebody who was going to try to make it. And he was like, oh, I'll have a beer or two and discuss more stories with my friends at the bar. You know, that wasn't, you know, that wasn't a good work ethic for her. No, no. I mean, fun uh, is not okay in my family. Oh, no. Leisure well, is, especially sloth.
0: <laughs> especially the way you described your grandmother. I can see that not being, I can see the eye roll quite a bit for her going, uh, you need to get along with the, the program here oh, in do No, but Dudes. if it
1: hadn't been for her, they never would have gotten out. She went to that consulate, consulate. day in and day out and day in. And day in and where are our visas? Where are our visas? Not knowing that uh, the uh, American State Department was intentionally holding them up.
0: I've heard stories about yes. that. My, well my question documented. is, yeah. um, have you thought about telling your aunt's story? Because, I mean, that is a different component to it.
1: So my aunt's story is in the book. And her story is is fascinating as well because when my family was having difficulty getting to America and their visas weren't coming through, and the war had already started, they had a backup plan that involved marrying my aunt off to a uh, Chinese um, engineering student who had been a a, a, a had been a border b o a r d e r in mm-hmm. um, my father's uncle. Uh, an aunt had an apartment nearby, and um, they had a, a boarder to help pay the rent, who was this Chinese um, engineering student. And he was very enamored of uh, my father's sister, who was nine years his, his elder. So she was a teenager. She was like 17. He was 34. And he made a proposal that he would get them visas to a northern Uh, Chinese province if and only if um, she would marry him and eventually that is what happened and then they thought they were going to leave for China uh, through a a ship that left from Genoa and then Italy entered the war right before the ship left and so the plans got dashed but they were married already Um, the marriage took place in England so she had her own um very traumatic story much of which i i could not get all the details from i only got from what my father knew and i'm not sure he knew everything it was a story i would have liked some more completion um but um even her own children my cousins who were alive and well um couldn't quite complete all the details with as much emotional content as i would have liked to give it um but yeah her story is in and of itself, quite incredible.
0: So now that the book is up for pre-sale and we'll talk about the the title and everything and the link's gonna be in the bio, what is your next project? (laughs) Besides getting, besides, besides getting ballroom dancing taken care of if you haven't already. (laughs) I'd say
1: a couple of courses too.
0: (laughs) And um, getting this in front of the government to get some kind of historic teaching in schools. What are your next plans for this? For this book? Well, or, for or general, going forward with your author career,
1: so I actually started writing another book, and I was halfway through it, and I really want to keep writing because I actually enjoy the, the like the physical feeling of writing, is gives me like uh, pleasure the way some people enjoy a massage. I don't like a massage because that requires relaxation, <laughs> and 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 then my mind is running about all these things I have to do. So who can enjoy a massage when you have so many things to do? It's terrible. But when I'm writing, my mind is in some peaceful place, not distracted by anything except I am in the book, literally, like I have entered the world of the book. So I started writing a book, a novel. It has nothing to do with the Holocaust. It is uh, an ensemble cast of people on a vacation, um, on a hiking trip together, people from all walks of life with all different personal situations it's both comical and it's a little sinister. And I really enjoy it. But I've had to put it on hold a little bit because I didn't realize that marketing a book is a whole job unto itself. And I had to learn these things I didn't know how to do, like, make a website and go on social media, and do podcasts. (laughs) And I learned how to make a website, which is fun. I like to learn new things. So it was fun. And I'm enjoying learning new things and i I actually i guess i like being busy because you know the upbringing uh so yeah so i feel like i have a a whole job so the writing you know of the other book which is temporarily called the climb is on just a small hiatus but i will get back to that as soon as i give this my entire heart and soul
0: everybody thinks that writing is just writing they don't realize everything else that goes into it they just like oh you're a writer okay well you're just writing a book that's all there's nothing else involved yeah Yeah, okay (laughs) (laughs) it's been a it's been
1: a learning experience but great all of it great i mean i really Mm -hmm. like i think you know (laughs) when i stopped practicing medicine again i thought like well if I'm not Dr. Birnbaum, I'm Mrs. Birnbaum, but that's my mother-in-law. So <laughs> how could I be Mrs. Birnbaum? But it's fine. I don't mind. Like, I, I thought I would really mind not having the, the title. And I suppose I could walk around saying, hey, you know, I could have put MD after my name, but I'm, I'm not practicing when I'm writing this book. I don't need the MD after my name. I could be something else. And I'm now I can really feel like I am something else. I did this thing. And you know, of course I want the book to be successful. Of course I do. I could sit there and look at my numbers, see like, what are sales today? Did they drop? But I always, I'm trying to stay grounded and remember that my goal always was to share my father's story. It's what he would have wanted. And I think it's really important. And I think as long as I stay grounded in that and make sure that it, my go, my job is to tell the story. That's it. If, if the book sells well, I'm delighted, but I had a career already. That's not the point. The point is to do something I love, to share the story, to, to educate. If I accomplish that, I will be in in heaven. I really will be so happy.
0: I think that's one of the biggest lessons as writers um, or authors is if you're getting in the business because you think you're gonna make a million dollars selling books. Well, those days I don't think really happen unless you're a celebrity now. So you have to do it because, number one, you're passionate about it. You're passionate about storytelling. And two, you want to share that story with the world. It doesn't matter the compensation because that's hit or miss. You have to do it for the right reasons. And it has to come from your heart. Because if the story doesn't come from your heart, even if it's somebody else's story you're relaying, people are going to know
1: exactly isn't know. that a commercial venture where i'm who's my target audience oh, i don't know i don't have a target audience and people who want to read it that's my target audience i hope they exactly i hope, people want to read it. Exactly. I hope when they read it they say oh my god that was great! you know, you wrote that well it was a great story um i was moved i think that's it i was moved you know i i cried when i wrote it i hope people not just cry but cry and laugh Be, you know I, I i really try to infuse it with the humor that it required it shouldn't feel like oh my god (laughs) this is terrible
0: i'm sure i'm sure it's an emotional roller coaster and that's a good thing because you want the highs you want the lows you want the experience when you're reading about somebody's life who had an amazing life because it sounds like it was a total complete journey So the book is American Wolf from Nazi Refugee to American Spy. It is available for pre-order now. It'll be out on the 23rd, correct? That is correct, yes. So is there anything else that I didn't ask or cover that you would like to say something about?
1: Oh, I think that I just did this for my father as a tribute to him. That was the major motivation. But now I'm doing it really for everybody else. It's a book, you know, again, that I hope that people enjoy with a message of hope. I think that's also, there's a message of hope and resilience that I think when people finish it, they will say not like, oh, that was a Holocaust story. Yeah, that was sad, but more like, no, this is something I could relate to. This is about, you know, the triumph of the human spirit. Uh, So that's, I think what I wanna convey in more than anything. And I hope people hope people love it. Um thank you so much for having me and letting me share the story.
0: Um, I don't really want I really want
1: to talk about myself too much, but 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 thank you for letting I mean, me talk about myself. I appreciate that.
0: Well, it's it's not only about the book, it's about getting to know who you are. So I thank you for your time.
1: Thank you, Donna. Thank you so much.
0: So it was an interesting interview. I think we touched upon what her dad did, and I think, you know. I, I can understand the dad, you know, with the spy car and driving around, weaving in and out. The funny thing is my dad was a, a an operator on a fire truck. And the one thing that I, I find amusing, he did not teach me how to drive. Neither one of my parents did. But what I find amusing is the fact that my dad would lecture me about speeding when the man would speed. And I know he would, um, but he was a fire truck operator. So, of course. So, when you look at your parents, and this is kind of going back, to what we talked about in the podcast. When we look at our parents, we look at them in a certain way. And as we either have our own children or we get older, we are able to look at them with a different set of eyes to see their flaws, to see their human nature, and to see maybe why their behavior patterns are what they are. You know, recently, I've talked to somebody and discovered some of my genealogy. And because of that, I'm able to look at my parents and my grandparents a little bit differently. And that gives you a much better understanding of generational trauma. And I know we've touched upon that on the show before, but it's something that I think is very valid and very important for most of us. We need to make sure that we don't just take our parents at face value. Yes, they are who they are. And yeah, in some points, they're not going to change. But if we could understand them better, and even look at their journey, like Audrey did, I mean, most of us don't get the luxury of having that journal. I was fortunate enough before my grandparent, my grandmother's died, not my grandfather's, but my grandmother's to sit down with a camcorder and actually record them telling me stories about their life and how they met my grandfather's and things of that nature. I haven't had that luxury with my father, it would have been great to do it. But Because he has some great stories as a firefighter, but I'm not going to have that. So for you out there, if you're capable of sitting down with your parents or your grandparents, I advise you to do so because you never know what nuggets you might learn. You never know what stories you might find out. Um, My father-in-law would tell me stories that his kids didn't even know. But him and I were hanging out because my husband was in the hospital at the time and his wife was in the hospital so we were both commiserating because we had nothing else to do. And he would tell me these stories, these amazing stories of him as a younger man in the navy. And he was married. So it wasn't anything it wasn't anything illicit. But he would tell me these stories about, you know, being being too intoxicated and being on autopilot when he came home. And I know this isn't funny, but he was on the base and driving to the ship because he was on autopilot. So it's it's those little amusing stories that his kids never knew. And they're like, my dad didn't drink. My dad had one beer and that was it. Well, no, there's a whole side of our parents that we don't know. And if we don't take those moments to really dig into who they are, we may lose a gift of figuring out some things about our own selves because that is passed on to each of us. So... Her book, once again, is American Wolf from Nazi Refugee to American Spy. I think, you know, you should check it out. It is at the time of this podcast. We recorded the podcast when it was still in pre-order. But now at the air date, it is available for purchase. So I advise you to check it out. It should be an interesting read. She wrote it with heart. She wrote it with soul, tears, happiness. And everybody needs a good cry and a good laugh at the same time. So I hope today you enjoy the show as always, and I hope you have a great day and I'll catch you next time, guys. Bye. The Better Two Podcast is mixed, edited and produced by Rich Zai of Third Ear Audio Productions.